Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 10 to 15 minutes. As always, we're your good buddies, Tim, Treg, and Michael. And we also have a special guest today, Treg's cousin, J.D. He's with us today in his state-of-the-art recording room, J.D.'s Tune Shop. Uh, in each Rocktail Hour, we bring you the greatest stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all times and other interesting thoughts behind the music and the tunes that have inspired us over the years. It is my understanding that today Treg is going to enthrall us with the story behind Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Thanks, so Treg, go ahead. Yeah, hey, thrilled to be here uh, in, in a real recording studio rather than in in our uh, in my uh, rock room at my house where we can hear the cars passing by and the dogs barking so uh, hopefully the recording quality will be a little bit better <laughs> for that this one than than previous ones I like I like the way we do it though in your recording room it makes me feel a little bit like Wayne's world <laughs> told me huh yeah <laughs> nice well I got to tell you that uh, this this one comes as a request uh, this was a listener request to do a, a song by Nirvana and if you're going to do any song by Nirvana, you got to take Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, I think it's the greatest Nirvana song. In fact, one of the greatest songs uh, in my mind of all time. I love it. Certainly, there's a lot of people who agree with me. I think that most people uh, who are rock fans consider Smells Like Teen Spirit to be the number one song of the 90s. I think it, in fact, even defined the 90s, if you, if you ask me, rock in the 90s. Uh, it's on the top of just about any list ranking rock and roll songs. And, in fact, it's been dubbed an anthem of a generation by a lot of the music press. You know, I, I, I think we're stretching a little bit when we say that it defined the 90s. I think if we're going to talk about defining the 90s, we better be talking about Millie Vanilli. <laughs> I was in high school in the 90s. <laughs> I didn't like Manila Vanilli as much as I liked Nirvana. <laughs> Good. All right. Okay. We've got uh, somebody a little bit younger representing today, representing the <laughs> younger generation. Three so old dudes cool. and one young guy. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, the story behind the title is kind of interesting. Uh, one night, Kurt Cobain, who I hope everybody knows is the lead singer for Nirvana, uh, he was hanging out with Kathleen Hanna, who at the time was the lead singer of Bikini Kill, and they were... Uh, wandering around the town uh, tagging buildings and things. And they got back to Kurt's house, and, and she wrote on his wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And that night they'd been talking about anarchy and punk rock, and so uh, Kurt thought that this was cool. He thought it had a revolutionary meaning to it. Well, what she actually meant was that, that Kurt smelled like the deodorant that his girlfriend was using. The deodorant was called teen spirit. And so when she said Kurt smells like teen spirit, she was saying he smells like this girl's deodorant. So much like a guy to always read into something a woman does way more than what it really is. Right. It's, uh, it also kind of, I, I find it funny that it's uh, a little bit ironic. After this song became popular, the sales of the deodorant skyrocketed. Everybody wanted to buy teen spirit deodorant. So you got this song that's all about anarchy and revolution and, and fighting against the mainstream, and it launched this commercial product. It, it greatly increased the sales of this deodorant, and it was also a, a huge mainstream commercial success which launched grunge and alternative rock into the mainstream. So you've got this song that's all about anarchy and revolution and down with the mainstream, and it's becoming mainstream and it causes that type of music to become mainstream and I found irony in that. 
A couple of the band members have talked about the general meaning behind the song. Krist Novoselic, who was the bass player, said that uh, Kurt despised the mainstream, and so he thinks that it's a song about the mass mentality of conformity. Uh, Kurt Cobain has commented on it. He says that it's about his friends. Uh, they feel like teens. They don't like to follow the guidelines expected for adults, and I can really relate to that. I still quite often feel like a teenager and think that rock and roll keeps you young, kind of like our motto. Uh, he also has commented that it has a teen revolutionary theme and that it describes what he felt about his surroundings and about his generation. Dave Grohl has said that he doesn't think there's any real message to it at all. Uh, he said that Kurt wrote the lyrics in about five minutes before he sang them, and so he, he thinks it was just syllables in order to fill the space in the song. And, and when they rhymed, it was even better. You know, maybe he was just coming up with a rhyme. I think even if you look at a couple of the lyrics, you can see that they certainly don't seem like they have much meaning at all. Uh, toward the end of the chorus, you've got the lines, a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, my libido, yay, and then hello, 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 over and over again. I don't find a whole lot of deep meaning in that. It sounds like he was trying to rhyme, so I can see what Dave Grohl is talking about there. But Dave Grohl did say that the essence of the song is defiant, apathetic alienation, which describes a lot of the generation at that time. It's, it's really hard to understand a lot of the lyrics because of the way that, uh, the way that Kurt Cobain sings. He, he sings in a guttural voice, and a lot of it is screaming, and he doesn't really try. It doesn't seem like he's trying to make it intelligible at all. In fact, a lot of radio stations in the beginning when the song was released refused to play it because they couldn't understand what he was saying. They didn't want to play a song that they couldn't understand. <laughs> But then after it caught on, a lot of the, uh, lot of the uh, independent stations and the college r radio stations played it, and it became started to get a groundswell of support. So the, the modern rock stations started playing it late at night, and it became even more popular, and so then they put it in, a, in heavy rotation during the prime time hours, even though you couldn't understand what he was saying. But you know what I find is kind of funny? I, I, I'd listened to the song many, many times, and you, you get used to the sound of the lyrics, you know, the way they sound. And it, this is one of those songs that you sing along with, even though you have no idea what he's saying, you just kind of mimic the sound that he's making. That's what I've done for years and years. So do you actually sing words or do you just sing sounds? Just sounds. Oh, or you, what right. you think they might be, you know. All right. Especially when he gets into the chorus about a mulatto, an albino, a mosquito, my libido. You have no idea what that is. So you're just singing, how does that, uh, -na -na -na. Yeah, like, I never had an idea of what That's like saying. a bad Saturday Night Live skit about free association with your psychiatrist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you were just talking about this A mulatto, this an albino. <laughs> Just talking about this before we started recording because we were watching the music video and I thought at the end they were saying sayonara and they're saying in, in denial. A denial, a, a denial. denial over and over again. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things I find so fascinating about this song is that it you can't understand the words, but you don't really need to in order to understand, um, you know, at least what the feeling of the song is or even what the song is about. I remember the first time I heard this song, it was in China, of all places, in Beijing at an underground punk club. Um, and this you know, just cool. fantastic uh, tune came on. And the, the club was filled with mostly kind of you know, Chinese punkers um, in a very underground scene in the you know, early 90s. Uh, I'm not even sure it was legal for these people to be getting together. 
Uh, and they certainly didn't understand what the what the song, uh, what Kurt Cobain was singing, because I couldn't and I spoke English. <laughs> but everybody understood the kind of anarchy undercurrents um, of the song. And to see these uh, you know guys who were really just experiencing their first taste of, of political freedom, you know, to be able to you know be punkers and dress like punkers and get together in a club and listen to punk songs, um, you know, these people really could tell just from the, the groove of the song, that this song was a very countercultural uh, and anti-authoritarian uh, anti uh, song. I think that Kurt Cobain was so great, um, not because he was a great lyricist, but because he was able to you know, write these grooves and these melodies that, that really express um, you know, meaning in a way that uh, you know, lyrics could, but I'm not sure he was the best uh, lyricist, but he was certainly one of the best uh, songwriters and melodic writers um, of his generation. That's fantastic. That's a great story. That's a way better story than the first time I heard the song. I, I had just gotten married not too long before that, and my wife and I were riding in the car, and this song came on, and she said, this is a great song. You need to hear this. And I said, oh, I can't stand this kind of music. So I switched the radio station, and, and up comes Supertramp, and we fought for the next five minutes over Supertramp, Nirvana, Supertramp, Nirvana. So, yeah, that was my first experience. <laughs> there are some of the lyrics that uh, that are kind of interesting and that may oh, have hey, some can meaning. I just can I just interject that I really did grow to like this song over time. It just took me off guard the first time I heard it, but this is a great song, and there's so much energy in it. That's what I like about it, and it took me a while to appreciate Kurt Cobain, but I really did grow to like not only Kurt Cobain as an artist, but uh, Nirvana as a group. They were great, yeah. so... Especially if you see the song in connection with the video, yeah, it just I just wasn't prepared to to switch over from my old '80s music into something new at the time, but I caught on. A lot of people attribute "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for destroying the music of the '80s. Yeah, well, I appreciated that. <laughs> in some ways, that was a blessing. <laughs> Slaying the dragon. Uh, so there are there are some lyrics that. Uh, that may have some meaning. It's hard to know for sure. Actually, I read that a lot of people think the song is about Kurt's girlfriend at the time, and there's some lyrics in there that talk about a woman. Uh, there was one guy who speculated that the song is all about AIDS. I'm not sure how he gets there, but uh, uh, you know, the part about contagious and mosquito and libido and things like that, I don't know. I don't see that either. But it does appear that some of these lyrics have some meaning. There's a line in, in there, here we are now, entertain us. And people have said that that was something that Kurt announced every time that he went to a party. Uh, you've got the, the line at the beginning of verse 2. He says, I'm worse at what I do best, and for this gift I feel blessed. Our little group has always been and always will until the end. So it, some people have speculated that, that uh, he wrote this because he never thought too highly of himself when he says, I'm worse at what I do best. And also that he was just happy to be in an indie band with his fellow misfits singing songs. There you go. After they became big and weren't just this indie band anymore, it, it kind of lost, for a lot of the band members, for, they've, they've commented that it lost that independent kind of a feel to it that they really liked. It's hard to sing against the man when you really are the man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
I think this will segue perfectly. I think because isn't that one of the next upcoming podcasts is about Green Day, and it, as I understand it, that is their story. <laughs> That's right. The, the, the punk rock bubblegum pop band. <laughs> you know, it, it, I do find it funny that all of these bands are, you know, they they pride themselves on being independent and and that and then they become these huge commercial successes. A lot of them, and it, and a lot of the music still after that loses. Uh, a lot of the energy, you know, when they become corporate. I don't think that happened in Nirvana. I didn't notice it. Maybe they didn't have long enough to, to become corporate. You know, maybe maybe the reference to AIDS was the fact that the first documented case of AIDS was in an albino man. Is that right? No, oh. it's actually not. <laughs> I wanted to sound really intelligent, so I threw in a made-up fact. Patient Zero was an albino? I had no idea. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the video, because the video really launched uh, the popularity of the band. It was a hugely popular video, probably the greatest video of the 90s as well. And uh, the, the, the theme for the video was Pep Rally from Hell. It's a great video. You know, you get the energy of the song, but you've also got uh, a bunch of kids who are, are pretending to be at a pep rally. you got the band playing. you got these cheerleaders who are cheering. And then some mysterious janitor that's hanging out in the background. <laughs> I have no idea what that dude's in it for. But you got all these kids that are in the stands, and they're kind of bored with the pep rally, and the cheerleaders are just going through their thing. But then it gets rocking, and the song gets rocking, and the, the kids in the stands start to do a mosh pit, and the, and the cheerleaders are doing their cheers. The cheerleaders have... On their uniforms, if you see, they've got the, the symbol for anarchy on it, which I found to be kind of interesting. Does, does anybody besides me, though, find the janitor to be just a little bit disturbing? More than a little bit, yeah. He's a little <laughs> creepy. I mean, if you could figure out what his place was in that whole piece, that would be great. But if somebody could explain it to me, but otherwise it's just kind of creepy. It didn't even seem like he was in the same scene. You know, right. he wasn't, he yeah. wasn't at the pep rally. It was like he was backstage yeah. or something. Yeah, they were filming. They had to film him separately. <laughs> so maybe if, if anybody out there knows what the purpose of the janitor is, let us know. Or even if you've got a great idea, just, just email us. I, it doesn't have to be true. <laughs> well, you got the dunce at the end with the janitor, and That's you're right. thinking, what, what is that all about? <laughs> Pretty freaky, some of it. Uh, then at the at the end of the video, you got the crowd who tears down the set, and apparently this is what happened for real. Uh, some of the some of the people in the in the stand, some of the extras that they were used, asked the producer if they could tear the set apart, and he said, "Yeah, do it." So they did, and they got it all on film. Initially, MTV refused to play the video, I guess because it was too crazy. I don't know. And then uh, and then they started to play it, and and then they put it in their heavy rotation. And actually, they, uh, they credit uh, this song and this video for creating a brand new market for them of all of these yeah. people who love the alternative and the, grand, and the grunge music. And I think it really helped really escalate MTV's popularity. You know, Trey, you talked, uh, you, you described the song earlier about the, uh, an anthem of a generation. And I think it's, it would really be hard to overstate um, the impact that Kurt Cobain had on the 90s and uh, you know, the generation that, that grunge music was was seen to represent. I mean, it, it, to me, a real litmus test of somebody who was important socially is that is somebody who's, and who's, passed, who's passed is that you remember where you were when you when you found out that he died. And, and that's clearly the case with me. I mean, I, I was in at UC Santa Barbara visiting my younger brother um, 
you know, and the TV was on, I remember just on the nightly news, uh, you know, whatever, ABC nightly news, the broadcaster came on and you know, said Kurt Cobain had been found dead, shot to death in his home. Um, you know, there, there aren't probably more than 10 people in my, in, in, in my life that I can remember, you know, that uh, their death having an impact on me. And, and certainly Kurt Cobain did. Um, Incidentally, uh, I was at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, There's two people in the house. Uh, one was my younger brother. The other was uh, a very well-known surfer at the time named Donovan Frankenrider, who I think incidentally went on to become quite a rock star of, uh, of his own uh, a few years later. Oh, yeah. But in any event, uh, that's my story of knowing when Kurt Cobain passed. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've heard Donovan Frankenrider's music. He's pretty good. And you met him. Uh, he was uh, the lead singer of a of a band called Sunchild uh, that was big at, at UC Santa Barbara. Just lo- locally had some fame, uh, and he went on you know, obviously to bigger and better things musically. Uh, quite a talented guitarist. Uh. Hmm. Where were you when you heard that he died? I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> there goes, there, there goes my theory. Like this. <laughs> Where were you when you found out the Supreme Court had ruled that George Bush really won the election, and did you cry? I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, the only person I remember where I was when they died was Jerry Garcia. I think we talked about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think we did. Well, to to sum it up, I think that Kurt Cobain uh, has said that he didn't really like the popularity that they gained from this song. They didn't even think it was the best song on the album. They didn't think that it was going to be a a crossover success. They thought that the cut, uh, Come As You Are, was going to be the one that, that would it would be a crossover success for for that album. Um, Cobain has said that the song is actually an embarrassment to play. Yeah, for I think for punk bands, the idea of having a popular song in itself is anathema. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the it's the <laughs> it's the kiss of death for a punk band to have a popular song. <laughs> <laughs> well, and on that note, "Come as You Are" is one of the easiest songs to play on the bass and on the guitar, and that's usually one of the first songs that people start out with is Come As You Are. No you kidding. Know, they, yeah. That's cool. Well, I hope we did uh, I hope we did this song the justice that it deserves because it is a phenomenal song, had a huge impact on my life. It, uh, I think it was the song that really got me interested in modern rock after I listened to classic rock through the 90s, through most of the 90s, until the station that I liked uh, went to smooth jazz, and uh, I nearly drove off the road when I was listening, drove me insane. So I, I started, I turned over to the modern rock station and started hearing Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, all that came out of Seattle, right, in the same time period. Pretty amazing stuff. And isn't it ironic that now they would be considered classic rock as well? That's so right. <laughs> it's the circle of life. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a great story. Thanks, Treg. We appreciate your listenership. We appreciate your comments on our website. If you have any suggestions for songs or stories, please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com. Please like us on Facebook. Uh, We're also on Twitter. You can sign up on Twitter and get information about us. Otherwise, we will catch you again when we do our next podcast. So rock on. 